We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul here is looking at how we as believers are to walk. That is how we're to live in a hostile world. And after a general statement in verses 1 and 2, Paul goes on in verses 3 to 8 to deal with one specific area, that of maintaining sexual purity. So let us read the words. We've already started looking at them. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, your sanctification. So Paul doesn't even start with, how can I overcome sexual temptation? He starts by making a statement, realize your identity as a Christian. You are a holy one, you are set apart, and it is your Father's will to sanctify you, to make you more pure. That's where we begin. And then, a negative, which we'll finish this evening, that you should abstain from sexual morality. And then, after the negative, positive motivation, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that no one should take advantage or defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. For God has not called us to uncleanness, but in or to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So we're on the second point, the negative here, I'm to abstain from sexual immorality. What does the word abstain mean? Well, if you apply it to the drinking of alcohol, it means do not touch it. Now, the Bible does not teach total abstinence when it comes to alcohol. But it does teach total abstinence in terms of sexual immorality. It's drunkenness the Bible condemns with alcoholic drink. When it comes to sexual immorality, we're to have nothing to do with it. That's what the word means. Make a clean break. Now, Paul isn't saying abstain from sex. As we noted last time, just as the other drives that we've been created with, the drive for food, the drive for territory, and the drive for sexual relationships, there is nothing inherently evil with the sex drive. So we're not, if we are to be holy, to abstain from sexual relationships. It's sexual immorality that Paul is thinking of. Now, in case you say, Pastor, how can you, from the pulpit of Heath Church, use the word sex? My answer is very simple. Paul here is talking about sexual immorality. So that word has uh, a connection uh, to sexual relationships. 
Also, the whole point of the Apostle Paul here is that there's nothing dirty about sex. We mustn't be Victorian in our attitude to these things. We mustn't either be governed by the spirit of today. We must be governed by the timelessness of God's word. The word for sexual immorality here in the Greek is pornia. Our word pornography comes from it. And it doesn't just include uh, adultery, where a husband or a wife is unfaithful uh, in the marriage. They're sleeping with somebody else. It includes that. It doesn't just include fornication, which traditionally means uh, sexual immorality outside as well as inside of marriage. And that is rampant, isn't it, in the West today. It also means what we look at, what we listen to. It's the heart that matters, not just the uh, physical. Uh, it's not just the sleeping with another person. If it's not within uh, the parameters of God's word, it's the desire of the heart. In the words of Jesus, it's the coveting. That's a heart matter. It's the look, as one person said, it's the second look. You look first time and you see beauty. You look the second time and you covet that. Everyone who looks at a woman or a man with lust for her or him, is already committing adultery in his own heart. So what do I do? I realize that these drives, I'm not just thinking of the sex drive now, but the drive for food, the drive for territory, they've all been affected by the fall. And we've got to be careful that they don't take us over. And especially when it comes to the sex drive, there is a burning to it. Uh, Paul refers to this in the letter to the Corinthians. He mentions burning lust. So what I do is I make a clean break with sexual immorality. I must maintain a pure mind. So anything that's toxifies my mind I avoid like the plague and this is where we we have to be so careful that we don't become legalistic what causes one person to fall in this area will be different to another person now let me give you uh, a few verses in Romans 13 uh, I find uh, this very important. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Paul is writing to the Romans, Gentiles. Like in Thessalonica, the immorality and the amorality, the confusion that was in Rome at the time, was phenomenal. Uh, let me read first from Romans 1. Before I read from Romans 13, what was the kind of sexual standards there? This is how Paul puts it. Anything goes. Degrading passions. So this is the sexual desire gone haywire, been twisted, 
women exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoning the natural function of the woman and burning in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts. I don't need uh, to make any comment on that. We all understand what that is referring to. And what Paul says, lovely words, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So I'm in the flesh, you're in the flesh, and we have this weakness, and it will vary for every one of us. And so what I do, I don't just avoid what is sexually immoral, but I avoid those situations that cause me to be tempted. Uh, to put it another way, I don't feed the flesh. I guard what comes in. Now, what I can't do, I can't give you a list uh, like a, <laughs> a canonical list of what is right and what is wrong because the bible doesn't do that all i can say is this we don't play with fire do we we don't see how close we can get to the fire if we do that we will get burnt what we do is keep as far away from the fire as possible. And it's a bit like that when dealing with sexual immorality. And so if something I read, if something I watch, if something I listen to causes me to fall, then I avoid those things, those particular things. Now, that doesn't mean that we become monks but it does mean that we know ourselves and that we take seriously this spiritual battle that we are in and we watch our hearts. Are we serious? And I'm not just looking at the younger ones here. All of us, are we serious about abstaining from situations that cause us to fall. Uh, the example in our reading, I think, is one of the best in uh, the Bible. Joseph, he was a handsome man. And he had a high position in Potiphar's house in Egypt. His master uh, put him in charge of everything. And Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him. And day in, day out, she tempted him. And it reached a stage where it got too overpowering for Joseph. They were alone in the house, and she held on to his garments, and he didn't bother reasoning with her anymore. He just fled. Now, that's a good picture of abstaining. It means flee, run away. Now, we know what happened later. She blamed Joseph then for abusing her, which was completely fraudulence it was the other way around but Joseph was so insistent on avoiding 
uh, even that situation that was causing him to want, maybe, uh, to uh, fall into the temptation. He just took himself away. Now, that's what we've got to be serious about. Christians of another generation were much better at this than we are. Maybe their danger was legalism. But let us not overreact to that and be lazy fair when it comes to these things. Jesus Christ, if you think I'm putting it too strongly, listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Therefore, if your right eye offend you, pluck it out. How can I live without my right eye? Oh, God will give you grace. It's a metaphor here. It's a picture. If something really important is causing you to stumble, it is better for you to remove yourself from that rather than be consumed by this lust. Uh, similarly, if your right hand causes you to fall, break it off. It's better for you to not have a right hand. Let us be serious. It doesn't mean we're in a ghetto. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy the good things of life. But it does mean that we know ourselves. You need our prayers if you're in the arts world. I believe God has given us the arts and I praise God for believers who are artistically minded and who are witnessing in the arts world. Job said, I've made a covenant with mine eyes not to gaze at the virgin. Al Martin, who was a very powerful preacher, apparently he had his wife check all the newspapers and the magazines that he was about to read. She must have known her husband better than he knew himself. And she cut out any photos that might cause him to be tempted. I do not know what you make of that. So that's the negative abstain, have nothing to do with sexual immorality and what causes you to fall, even if there's nothing wrong in that situation for another Christian. And then positives, and we'll finish after this, God willing. Some positive motivation. Paul then gives us three things just to encourage us in this area of sexual purity. And the first has to do with our own bodies. How do you view your own body? Do you view your body as something that drags you down spiritually? Do you view your body as something that's not uh, spiritual? That's not biblical. That's what the dualists believed in, in the time of the New Testament. Our bodies are one day going to be redeemed. You're going to have a perfect body, but even our fallen bodies are to be used in the service of God. And so what we must do is, firstly, control our own bodies. Uh, Paul puts it uh, a little later in verse uh, 4, that each of you should know how to possess. That means to control his own vessel, best translated as body, in sanctification and honour. Self-control. 
So this isn't just avoiding what causes me to fall into sexual immorality, but positively, I look at my body as something that God has made. I look at uh, the desire, the sexual desire, as something that God has created me with. Uh, There is a word, uh, there are different words for love in the New Testament. You've got filio, brotherly love. You've got agape, the love of God. And there is a word for sexual love, eros. Uh, There's a famous book, some of you may have read it, by Jim White, Eros Defiled. That's what the fall has caused. So there's nothing wrong with eros love. So I recognize that I have these God-given desires. And what I do is, by God's help, I seek to control them. What happens with the sexual lust when it goes out of hand is that it takes over. It burns us up eventually, doesn't it? And we're witnessing that in our society today. All you need is love, sang the Beatles. Well, look what that has produced. What they meant was all you need is lust. And it's gone haywire. No, we're meant to control this, to control this. Uh, There is a verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. When we commit sexual sin, we sin against not just the Lord, but against our bodies. Uh, C.S. Lewis has one of his best illustrations here. Uh, He imagines a man with a lizard on his shoulder. Are you familiar with this illustration? The lizard is a picture of lust. Uh, This twisted lust. And the lizard is whispering in his ear, you can't live without me. Oh, listen to what I'm saying to you. And the poor man is uh, completely uh, overwhelmed by this lizard. And he is constantly falling again and again to the suggestions of this lizard. And he's worried that he's never going to be free from this temptation. Are you feeling like that? Brother, sister, it is the experience of every Christian to struggle in this area. As a young man, I'm no longer young, but as a young Christian, I came across the hymns of William Williams Pantakelin, and in one hymn, he asks God, do you forgive falling a hundred times to the same fault? And I can imagine what temptation that would have been for a man in his 20s. You know, William Williams Pantakelin, even though he was filled with the Spirit of God, he still had hormones. When Paul wrote to Timothy, a young minister, and urged him to flee youthful lusts, he was writing to a young man who had those. And so uh, there is this lizard, and we are constantly uh, fighting against the suggestions of this lizard. But the point of the picture is this it is possible to overcome by the power of another this temptation and eventually this man thinks the lizard is going to kill him there's no way he's going to be able to overcome but he does overcome and you know what the lizard doesn't disappear that would be to become robots if we're going to become overcomers it doesn't mean that we no longer have these desires the lizard is transformed into a stallion and instead of being on the shoulder of the man the man now is riding the stallion can you see the point of the illustration 
these desires are not meant to take over us. They're not meant to control us. They're not meant to destroy our lives. They are there to serve us, and we are to master them. C.S. Lewis was a genius, you know. A stallion, not a wild horse. <laughs> a stallion. So I recognize that I have these desires, and by God's help, I pray, I don't repress them. Do not repress natural desires. Do you know what happens? If you repress them, they will go in on themselves and eventually they will cause even worse problems. As I believe we have witnessed, uh, for example, in uh, the abuses that have been exposed uh, in Roman Catholicism, uh, where you have celibacy forced upon priests. No, no, don't repress. Control and direct them in God's way. That, that, that's how we do it. So how is that? Well, the second thing is we have a right view of our own bodies. There's an honor to the body. There is something sacred about the sexual desire. I want to use it in the right way. And then the next thing, I have this view of my relationship to other people. So it's not just that I control these desires, but we are to protect one another in this regard. That's what's so wrong about today's society. It's less love than a previous generation that would have been uh, more legalistic. There are broken families galore. Uh, there are mental health problems all over because this lust has gone out of control. My friends, if we have a right view of our own bodies and of this desire as something God-given and to be channeled in the right way, we will have a right view of one another. Uh, there, there is very strange words here. Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. That can be translated as wife. So what's the right direction for these God-given desires? It's the bond of marriage. So Paul is talking about a man and a woman. The vessel is wife. Paul is addressing uh, the men first, so a man and a woman in the marriage bond. And then he talks, and these are strange words, that no one, verse 6, should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Now, some people think Paul is going off there and talking about something financial, but he's not really talk, talking about that. He's thinking here about betraying one another by being unfaithful within the marriage bond. So Joseph, when he was being tempted by Potiphar's wife, he was saying to her, in effect, look here, I am under your master. He's put all these things under my control, your husband. And if I do this with you, I'm going to betray him. I'm going to defraud him. Have you ever thought of marriage as something to protect? It's not a... You may ask, Pastor, how can you talk about these things? You're single. Well, so was Paul. So was Paul. I may not be able to talk from experience, but I can be more objective... Marriage is to protect, not as a prison. I hope no one is in a prison. 
but as a walled garden. Isn't that lovely? A a marriage where these God-given desires are not repressed but channeled in the right direction is a fruitful place, a beautiful garden, and they are benediction, marriages that are of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he puts it like this, if we can't exercise self-control, we should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. God's way of channeling these desires is within marriage. And within the marriage, we must be careful that we don't defraud one another. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Another translation for defraud is to cross the line. A modern word is abuse. It's a big subject today, isn't it? Domestic abuse. And so we have a right view of one another, not just a right view of our bodies, but a right view of one another within marriage. Uh, Let me read again. Paul, there's something timeless about the Bible in this regard. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 and 3. Uh, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. We're agreed. But then he goes on to say, the husband should give to his own wife her rights and likewise the wife to her husband. It's not the husband dominating the wife. Isn't that what we sometimes hear of, even in Christian circles? What is defrauding in this regard? It's crossing a line. What is it to cross a line? What's abuse? Abuse is to force yourself on another. That can be sexual abuse. That can be physical abuse. It can be psychological abuse. A domineering husband. That's not a Christian marriage. Where have the gentlemen gone? Aren't we supposed to be gentlemen as believers? Let let me quote John Stott. Why am I quoting John Stott? Well, he's got an excellent quote first. And then he was single. He was single. You know, uh, wasn't uh, Charlotte Bronte, one of the Bronte sisters, was single and can still write about romantic love? There is a world of difference, says Stotts, between lust and love, between dishonorable sexual practices which use the partner and true lovemaking which honors the partner, between the selfish desire to possess and the unselfish desire to love, cherish, and respect. May our marriages, because we're strong on marriage as evangelicals, thank God we are, but may our marriages within be something beautiful. And someone may ask, well, pastor, what about other sexual desires? 
what happens if I'm not attracted, if I'm a man and I'm not attracted to a woman? I'm attracted to another man. What do I do then? Well, exactly the same as what any other person does. Paul says, abstain from sexual immorality. I'm interested that Lloyd-Jones, in his sermons, he would use the word sex. So we're talking now about somebody who was preaching in the 1960s, 1970s. And this is a true story. A young man went to see Dr. Lloyd-Jones for pastoral advice. This was back in the 70s, and he was struggling with same-sex attraction. And he asked Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, what am I to do? And all Dr. Lloyd-Jones said to him was, well, deal with it. I'm not going to do an impression of him. (laughs) Deal with it as you would deal with any other temptation. So I abstain from sexual immorality. I make sure that I don't fall, whether it's being attracted to another woman or another man. I avoid situations that cause me to fall. And then I control, I channel these desires in the right direction. At the risk of being misunderstood, I will say this. A number of people who are artists would have same-sex attraction. And over the decades uh, before the confusion which we've had today, uh, they have channeled their desires into producing works of arts. I don't know what you make of that. I feel for our young people growing up today because of the confusion. We begin with our identity, don't we? With all the confusing labels, we start with, I am a believer. I am Christ's. And then you work into the details. Whatever your struggles may be, Jesus Christ is sufficient. And you don't have to repress. You don't have to stop becoming yourself. Jesus Christ wants you to be as he has made you, with the personality that you've got. What grace does is not change that personality. That's what the cults do. It refines that personality. And there's a difference, isn't there, between porneo, pornography, and beauty. I think as evangelical Christians, we're Philistines often when it comes to beauty. We're afraid of the physical. We're afraid of the body. We're afraid of music. We're afraid of the arts. We're afraid of the great works of literature. My friends, that is not what Paul was like. That is not what the great theologians were like. That is not what our Calvinistic Methodist fathers were like. They were cultured men. They were in touch with what was going on in society. But... There's a difference between what is dirty, pornographic, and what is beautiful. And you can admire beauty. Uh, You know, when I went to the Vatican Museums, have you ever been to the Vatican Museums? It's well worth going. Not to see the Pope, but to see Raphael. Raphael, the artist. 
do you know he was a bit of a character? And by that, I mean he didn't live a very nice lifestyle. And neither did Michelangelo. But the works that they produced, that's not pornography. That's beauty. That's beauty. And there are naked bodies there. Uh, the church, after Michelangelo had painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, uh, some in the church thought, ooh, that's going a bit too far, and they commissioned painters to cover different parts up. Oh. Beauty. Beauty can be admired. It's not falling into sin when you see a beautiful person and you praise God for that beauty. That's not lusting after the person. It is not falling into sexual immorality when you can watch a masterpiece of a film, you can read a great work of literature, and what works of literature don't have what we're talking about this evening in them. Listen to great pieces of music and admire the beauty, the beauty. Well, I've gone on for too long, but there is a third thing, and I must finish with this. And it's not just our own bodies, our relationship with one another, but our relationship with God. Do you know what your body is, believer? It's not something to drag you down. I know it feels like that as we're getting older. <laughs> Come on, body, get out of bed. It's not something to drag you down, it's a temple. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. When Paul is dealing with sexual immorality in Corinth, do you know what he says? He says, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And do you know what else? Singletons, as well as married people, we are all betrothed here. Do you know what human marriage is? Human marriage is a type. The archetype, the real thing, is not the marriage of a man and a wife, but the marriage of the Lord Jesus to his church. I think human marriage is a reflection and a pale reflection, at best, of that marriage that will be in heaven. If you're single, don't think that getting married is the answer. It might be the beginning of your problems. Do not let anybody, and I've heard this uh, in a few evangelical circles, but do not let anybody say that you're incomplete unless you're married. That is not biblical. You are only complete, whether you're married or whether you're single, in Jesus Christ. The perfect man was never married. Never married. And let me finish by quoting, they're not easy words, but the words of J.I. Packer. Uh, he's died now. He was one of the greatest theologians this country had. A benighted society, and it's benighted more than any time, urgently needs recalling to the noble and enabling view of sex which scripture implies and the seventh commandment assumes namely that sex is for 
fully and permanently committed relationships which prepare us for that is which their archetype, the love and delight and knowledge of God. That is why a single man like Paul and myself and other people who are single here, we can understand something about these things because we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, may God protect the marriages in this church. May God bless those who are going to get married. May God cause marriages to flourish. And may our marriages be witnesses to Christ. And may those of us who are not married, may we not think that we've got second best, but may we serve the Lord. And may we all stand up and say, there is none like Jesus for his namesake. Now let us sing together. Jesus, Jesus, all sufficient. It's not your partner. Uh, it's only Jesus Christ that is all sufficient. Number 612. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. For God did not call us to uncleanness, 
but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who's also given us his Holy Spirit. Father, we praise thee for the gift of uh, marriage, for the gift uh, of romantic love. And we praise thee, Father, that even in our experience in this world, they are but reflections of something higher, something eternal. And we're just asking, O oh God, whether we're married, whether we're single, uh, whatever our struggles may be in terms of sexual immorality, uh, what uh, our uh, attractions may be, O oh Lord our God, just help us to abstain from sexual immorality and to uh, redirect in the power of the spirits uh, these desires so that we may serve thee with our bodies as well as with our souls. And now may the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirits be with us now and forever. Amen.